we're going to actually talk about something that flows naturally from the way that last week's sermon ended. From the way last week's sermon ended. So if you remember, last week we began hearing the exposition of what it means to love our enemies. What it means to love our enemies. He ended the sermon, Travis did, with three tips for practically loving your enemies. And remember, the last one was to share the gospel with them. To share the gospel with them. So that, that's kind of where we're going today. We're going to be talking about the motivation behind evangelism. And if you've been coming on Sunday nights to our apologetics evangelism class, and you know that we have pretty much spent the last few months looking at this practical method for evangelism. It's a, it's a good method. It's based out of that passage in John 4 that we just talked about, that, I, that we just read together. Um, it's, a, it's a good way. It's not the only method, uh, but it's a good way to have an evangelistic conversation with an unbeliever. And if you've been coming on Sunday nights, and you know that, that it's a strategy that comes from a program called The Way of the Master, uh, and it's been given this title because of Jesus' approach in John 4. Uh, the way of the master then implies that it's a type of evangelism that Jesus practiced. And today, what we're going to do, and if you notice the title, we're going to be looking at, at the heart of the master, the heart of Jesus when it comes to evangelism. We're going to see, uh, hopefully, uh, we'll see what Jesus' motivation was, and therefore what our motivation should be in evangelism. And, and to do that, we have an outline that's not in your bulletins of, of three points. Uh, first, the compassion of Christ. Second, the reason for his compassion. And third, the responsibility of his disciples. And I'll tell those to you again as we go further through this. So uh, let's take a look then at Matthew 9, 35 through 38 together. Matthew 9, 35 through 38 says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So what's, what's going on here is essentially, essentially it's a summation of the ministry of Jesus to this point in Matthew. That's what, that's what we see in Matthew, uh, in, in Matthew 9.35, in that first verse. He has been traveling around the villages and towns of Galilee, uh, which is an area that at this time is estimated was there's a population of about 3 million people. 3 million people in these various towns and villages. And we're told in, in verse 35 that he's doing at least three different things. He's teaching in the synagogues, he's proclaiming the gospel, and he's healing every disease and affliction. And this is what, if you actually, if you turn back to Matthew 4, uh, 23 through 25, this is, this is what you see that, that he's been doing this whole time. You see almost an exact uh, similar verse in Matthew 4, 23. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds 
followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So, so we see that it's happening there, and then, uh, and then we have this kind of break in the narrative where, where we have the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, and we see some of what this teaching was there. And then the narrative picks right back up in his ministry of doing just these things that we just talked about at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And you, if you look at your little headings that are probably in your Bible, you see in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, that he heals a leper. In 8, 5 through 13, he heals the centurion's servant, uh, while at the same time teaching on faith and false religion. In 14 through 17, he heals Peter's mother-in-law and some more sick people, and he casts out some more demons. And in 8, 18 through 22, we see that he uses some situations to teach on the seriousness of what it means to follow him. And in 23 through 27, we see that he is, this is crazy, he is so exhausted that he's able to fall asleep in a boat in a storm, a storm that is, and it's not just, it's a storm that's so great and so scary that it terrifies these seasoned fishermen that he's with. And he uses, then uses that opportunity to teach them on faith again. And in 28 through 34, we see that he heals some men from demons. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, he heals a paralytic and uses it as an opportunity to teach on the forgiveness of sins. In 9, 9 through 13, he calls Matthew, and he uses it as an opportunity to teach on our need to recognize our lostness and our need for his mercy. And in 14 through 17, he teaches on his lordship and on the new covenant. And in 18 through 26, he heals the woman with the discharge of blood, and he brings a dead girl back to life. And in 27 through 31, he heals two blind men. In 32 through 34, he heals a demon-possessed man who is unable to speak. And these seem to be, with all of those, are just seem to be examples of what he was constantly doing. And, and so verse 35 is like a summation and a reminder of, of pretty much exactly what was said in 4.23. So, so then this is the context then, verse 35, the summation of what Jesus' ministry has been about, is the context for what we see in verses 36 through 38, which kind of serves as a bridge uh, between, uh, between this last narrative section and, and this upcoming section in chapter 10 where Jesus calls the disciples, calls out his disciples, and then a long kind of section of him giving instruction to his disciples. So, so you have to kind of understand that. That has to be in your mind when, when we're talking about this. What's been going on to this point, you have to understand and appreciate that to understand and appreciate our first point here, which is the compassion of Christ compassion of Christ. So, so try then to understand, comprehend what's going on. We're told in 425 that, that crowds from all over this entire region and, and beyond are coming to him and they're following him around. And he is spending all of this time and this, this energy among them, healing them and teaching them, even to the point of exhaustion, even to the, to the point where he's able to sleep in the back of that boat during a raging storm. These crowds are, are constantly there. They're pressing in on him. They are demanding so much of him. So, so keep this in mind. Keep that in mind about Jesus. And then ask yourself, how do you feel in crowds? 
What, what, what is your response in, in crowded situations? Have you, I mean, think of a time. Have you ever been shopping on a Black Friday or been in a traffic jam or waiting at the DMV, right? Even when you're in, and even actually when you're in a crowd of people who, who might energize you in some way, like, like a football game with, with guys who are fans of the same team as you, uh, you, you still don't, you still might like them in that situation, but you don't want them following you around when you're trying to sleep or trying to use the restroom or to bathe. You, you need a break from the crowds. Crowds typically end up frustrating us because they keep us from getting the things done that we want, right? They keep us from getting the things done that we want in the, in the, time, uh, in the time frame that we want. The longer we have to be in a crowd, the more frustrating it becomes for us generally because we're, we're naturally selfish. Now imagine, what if the crowd was there, that crowd that, that's frustrating to you was, was solely there to get your attention and to get your focus on, on them? It, it becomes even more frustrating. You're not, you're not just part of the crowd, but, but you're the focus of the crowd. And, and how annoying how fast that would get annoying. Moms, I've seen this. My wife had to do How much fun is it for you to have two, just two or three or four kids who are clamoring for your attention all at the same time? Just for a few minutes. How, how annoying and how frustrating does that get in that time? But let alone a crowd this size for hours, day in, day out. You get up in the morning. They're there. You go to sleep in the night. They're still there week upon week, month upon month, and there is nowhere you can go to get away from them. They're just always there, and they get up and they follow you wherever you go. Your movements are their movements. So that's what's going on here, and and this is what makes that first part of verse 36 so incredible. Just pretend you're reading this story for the first time. You're reading this story of Jesus for the first time ever, and, and you're to this point, and you have this understanding that we've just talked about of these crowds that are following Jesus and pressing in on him, and they're always there, and they're always following, and they're taking up all of his time and all of his energy. What would you expect to follow the line when he saw the crowds? So he's done all these things, constantly listening to their concerns, correcting their wrong thinking, meeting their needs one after another, and after you read the line, when he saw the crowds, comma, what do you think would come after the comma? When he saw the crowds, he sighed, or he longed for a break, or he tried to hide, or he, he got frustrated. And so certainly we would understand any of those responses. But the text says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. That's mind-blowing. That's, that's un natural. From a human perspective, this is the last thing that we would expect to hear at this point. And, and the word for compassion here, it's not, it, it's, it doesn't just mean something like, like feeling sorry for that person, like, like we would say to our son or daughter if they lose a, a football or soccer game or something, I'm sorry about that, or if they, if they lose a toy or pop a balloon, I'm sorry about that. Uh, it, it's not just being sad for someone because they are sad. Now, his compassion comes from an understanding of the reality of the situation. The Greek word here comes, uh, comes from the Greek noun splachnon, which is just a 
crazy sounding word, uh, but, but it, it's a word that refers to the seat of emotions in the person. It literally means that the, their, their stomach or, or their bowels, but, it, but it's, but it's how, kind of how we use the term heart. Right? Like when we say, I have a broken heart. Right? That, they, they use this term like that. So the ESV here renders the word as, as just simply had compassion, which is, which is an okay translation, but it takes away from the part of the word that actually refers to the physical feeling. So, so translations that say he felt compassion or was moved with compassion, that's, that's more the sense of, of what is, is being said here. The idea is that he looked on them with the compassion that he felt in the, in the pit of his stomach, a feeling that, that we've all felt before, right? That when, when we're bothered by something so much that it makes us feel sick to our stomach. That's what's being talked about. You're like, like when you first hear the news of someone you love passing away suddenly, the feeling you get in that, that moment. When, when Diana and I lived in Kentucky, we got involved in a young marriage class at the church we first joined. Uh, the class was taught by one of my seminary professors, Dr. Couture. Uh, it was in this class that we first began to feel at home in Kentucky. And, and it quickly it happened that outside of our parents, he and his wife quickly became the most important couple in Diana and my life, and, pro- and probably the most influential at all, maybe the most important because of proximity, even more important than our parents at that time. And in addition to being a seminary professor, he also uh, was the head of the seminary medical office because he had spent... Uh, most of his professional life as an obstetrician. When, when we found out that we were expecting our, our first child, we didn't have any insurance for, for quite some time after we were married, and, and he handled all of our prenatal care for our, with our first child for free. And they were so loving, and they were so kind to us. One of the most, he was one of the most compassionate and selfless men I've ever known one of the most compassionate couples we've ever seen. And a few years ago, when we were driving to Colorado from Kentucky to, to visit our family, I received a call from one of my friends informing me that Dr. Couture had died suddenly and unexpectedly while riding on his bike. And I still remember, I, I still remember that feeling vividly, that, that sickening disgusting feeling in the pit of my stomach like someone just punched me there. It was a feeling that only got worse as, as Diane and I talked about uh, his wife Jane and, and what she had to be going through. The implication here is, is it's gut-wrenching. So I'm sure you can think of some time like that. And, and this, this is the sense of what is going on inside of Jesus at this moment. That's, that's what that term indicates. So, so see the whole picture here. There's this crowd of people that's following him around everywhere, that's, that's clamoring for his time and his attention, and, and he doesn't hide, and he doesn't sigh, and he doesn't get frustrated, and he doesn't think of himself at all. He has this deep compassion build up in him, so strong that he, that he feels it physically in his body. Why? Why does he feel this way? What, what does he see that causes this reaction that's so different than, than how we would react? Well, the text tells us right here. It says, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. 
So, so the thing that causes him to feel compassion is his concern for their condition. And that, that's our second point, the, the reason for his compassion. The reason for his compassion. He, he's able to see beyond what they say their needs are to what their actual condition is. He's able to see beyond it. If, if all that they needed was what they thought that they needed, which was physical healing or, or food or things like that, then it wouldn't be such a big deal. They're harassed and helpless. It's not their phys- physical condition, but their spiritual one. And to, to illustrate this, Matthew uses the illustration that he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. They're as helpless as a sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are, are doomed. If you remember back to, to Lee's sermon a few weeks ago, they're doomed. Uh, they, they are not smart animals. They, they have no hope outside of the sheepfold. They, the, the shepherd must lead them to the pen or they will die outside of it. In fact, I did a little reading on, on sheep when I was preparing for this sermon, and I, I read this story of some shepherds in Turkey who were standing away off from their flock of sheep, and they watched in horror as one sheep suddenly ran over the edge of this ravine, and 1,500 more followed it. So many sheep that 400 of them died, and the other ones didn't die just because they were cushioned by the bodies of the 400 other sheep under them. The shepherds watched in, in horror as this happened because sheep are prone to wander off. They're prone to follow without thinking. Sheep can't defend themselves. And left without a shepherd, they'll be picked off one by one. Sheep are not fast. They can't fight off danger. And they don't perceive danger very well, clearly as illustrated from this story. And this is what Jesus sees in the crowds. This is what moves him to feel such compassion. He sees them in this condition, the condition that they are in. And it's true of the crowds today also. Your neighbors, people you work with, the ones standing with you in lines at the store and in crowds that you're in, they might think they are fine, like, like the people in the crowds that, that were following Jesus, unaware that their needs were, were more than physical. People today don't realize that they're harassed and helpless, that all of the things that they trust in and hope in are simply false shepherds that, that are only abusing them and harassing them further. They might take great comfort and joy and things like their political party or their job or their education. They might even take great comfort in they might even take great comfort in a unifying hatred for the church and for the people of God, thinking that, that that's a good place to be. They may have confidence and happiness, but they are blissfully unaware of their doomed condition. And Jesus here, he sees the crowd clearly. He sees past all of the petty, worldly things that can cloud our vision. He sees past that to what is really important. He looks past how they don't really care about him or his time, how physically draining they are on him, all the ways that they make his life more difficult. He sees through all of that 
right to their spiritual condition. Is that how we see the people in our lives? Is that, is that how you see your neighbor? Your, your actual neighbor, the, the one who lives close to you? Maybe they, maybe they have a dog that barks all the time. Maybe they do things to their yard that brings down your property value. They might do a whole range of things that would drive any sensible person crazy. But can you see through all of that? All the smoke, all the, all the temporal issues that, that, that worldly people would see and worldly people would complain about and worldly people would gossip about. Can you see through it the way that Jesus does? No matter how happy they seem to be in their lifestyle, see right through that to the harassed and helpless soul in distress. What about the people you work with? Or the ones you go to school with? Maybe they're, maybe they're lazy at their job and cause your work experience to be more difficult and, and they don't seem to care. Maybe they use filthy language all the time. Maybe they flaunt their sinful lifestyle in front of you and slander you and mock you, openly mock you and the Lord that you serve. Can you see through that? Can you see through their arrogance, the pride, the hollow joy that they have? See through that to the lost person who is completely unaware of their desperate need for a shepherd. What about the others in, in the crowds all around us, the people in the lines at the grocery store that wear clothes and T-shirts that mock God, the people on social media or, or out anywhere else who hate and despise people like you, like us, with, with our Christian worldview, those, those who have political agendas that seem to only be about making sure people like you are brought into submission to a culture that hates the truth of the Word of God. Can, can you see through that hatred with the eyes of Christ? Can you, can you see them trapped in bondage to the sin that enslaves them? The fact that they're hopelessly cut off from God. If we can't see that, why can't we? Because we actually have an additional reason to be able to look upon the crowds moved with compassion for them, a reason that Christ didn't have. And that, that's that we were once part of them. We were in danger of being eternally cut off from the love of God, slaves to sin, enemies of God. That's where we were. This was, this was never even possible for the, uh, this is an impossible reality for the second person of the Trinity. This earth could have come and gone with, with ever, per, every person who ever existed living out their life and spending eternity in hell, and God in three persons would have continued to exist for all eternity in all of his perfections. That's why we can never outgrow our need to meditate on and study the beauty of the gospel. The farther we get from it, the more prone we are to at least live like we did something to deserve it. Remember who you were what you deserve, what Christ did. Don't ever just let the gospel become common knowledge to you. Don't ever let it become nothing more than, than a truth that you use to evaluate other truth claims. Don't let it become something that only serves as the foundation of your worldview. It, it is those things for sure, but it can't ever be just that. 
Don't let it ever cease to fill you with awe, with thankfulness and praise. The Creator God of the universe would love unworthy enemies like, like us and reach down and save us at the cost of the precious blood of His Son. The more we remember that, the more we have that in our minds, the more we can see through those issues in the crowds, the easier it will be to see them with compassion, to view them with the mind of Christ. Real quickly, probably not that quickly actually, let me address another issue that I, I fear might lie behind our lack of compassion for the crowds. I want to spend some time on it because, because I've seen the problem in myself before. I've seen it in myself, and I've, I've of, I often hear it, I hear this thinking behind the comments of other well-meaning Christians. The man who many consider to be the father of modern missions, William Carey, I was in a, a famous meeting with, with Baptist leaders in the late 1700s. And as he was presenting his case for sending someone overseas to, to reach people with the gospel, he was abruptly interrupted and famously told, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And today when we hear that story, we we rightly recoil at it. We should. As someone would use the great doctrine of election to try and keep William Carey, who, by the way, was himself a, a, a devout Calvinist, use the doctrine of election as a reason to not take the gospel to people who have never heard it. It's, it's appalling. But I wonder how many of us, while well, we would surely never say such a thing out loud, and practically live the same way. We use similar thinking to excuse ourselves when it comes to evangelism. I know that I, I can allow myself to become calloused to the helpless state of unbelievers because I have total trust in the sovereignty of God. That I, I've seen that in me. Total trust in a good and true thing, and yet I somehow use it as a way to be calloused to the state of unbelievers. I can even allow myself, if I'm not careful, to, to, to think that this is a, a biblically mature position. But the doctrine of election and the truth of the sovereignty of God is to keep us from being worried about the promises of God failing. It's absolutely not to keep us from being concerned about the helpless condition of those around us. Ask yourself this. At this point, when Jesus looked out at the crowds and, and saw their condition as helpless and lost and then responded with compassion that he felt in his gut, at a gut level, because that's what it says here. It says it was because, that word because is in there, because of this condition that he felt this way. Was he at that moment failing to trust in the sovereignty of God? Did he suddenly lose faith? that God's purposes for this crowd would fail? Does he now think that somehow God's glory will no longer be magnified to its fullest extent in whatever happens to these people? Did he briefly lose his grasp on these truths in a moment of weakness? Do you think that the 
reason that the heart of Jesus Christ breaks when he sees the condition of the lost. While we are able to interact with them on a daily basis without being emotionally affected by their condition, do you think that's because we have a better understanding of the doctrine of election than Jesus did? There has never been a person in all of history that has known the complete ramifications and meaning of election and had a more developed understanding of the sovereignty of God than Jesus Christ. God himself is immutable. He cannot change. He remains unaffected by everything that happens. But when God in the incarnation becomes fully man and takes on every part of humanity, including emotions, we see exactly how emotions work in someone who is not tainted by sin. That's what we're seeing here. Look, look with me quickly over at Luke 19. Turn over to Luke 19. I want you to see this other case of this. It's one of actually many places where we could go and see something like this. Luke 19, 41 and 42. And when he, it's Jesus, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What, what is happening here? What's happening here? He, Jesus is weeping. He's weeping physically crying, shedding tears over a city that does not know the way of peace, that does not know its need to recognize the Savior, the very Savior who is weeping over it now. Why is he weeping? Is he, is he not trusting in the sovereign plan of God? Of course he does. Of course he does. That's reflected in, in his statement. He says it's hidden from their eyes. Who's hiding these things that make for peace from their eyes? Ultimately, the biblical answer is it's God. God is hiding them. He's the one. God is the one that removes veils so that people can respond to the gospel. He's the one who does that. Jesus knows this. He knows that these people have to remain hard-hearted because they are the ones that are going to scream for his crucifixion in a few days' time, the very event that God has decreed must take place to accomplish His purpose of salvation. That even though He knows that they must remain blind, blind for the plan of God to unfold the way that it must unfold, He still weeps for them and longs for them to know the things that would make for peace. He says, even this day, this day, that day before the crucifixion, he longs for them to know the things that make for peace. Brothers and sisters, we must see that there is no such thing as a theology that should keep us from being moved with a sense of compassion that would even bring us to tears for those who do not know Christ. And, and we can't just let ourselves off the hook by thinking, well, there is some way in the mind of God that that, that reaction and, and perfect understanding of theology makes sense in a way that I can't understand it because it's taking place in Jesus. We can't think that because turn to Romans 9. 
Romans 9. There's no other passage in the Bible that so clearly teaches the doctrine of unconditional election. I was in a church in Kentucky where they did not uh, believe that God elected those from eternity past and chose them to receive salvation. And as this passage teaches, and they were teaching on Romans 9, and what they did was just say, I'm not sure how this actually works, but it can't be what it seems like it says. Because Romans 9 is so clear. There's no other passage in the Bible that so clearly teaches the doctrine of unconditional election, that so clearly teaches that it is God alone who ultimately determines those who will be saved, that it is God's purpose of election that will stand, that only those whom He effectually calls will be saved. Let's just pick it up right in the middle of the controversial part in in verse 9 of, of Romans 9. This is what it says. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. It's difficult to imagine, isn't it, the doctrine of election being stated more clearly? If ever then there was a man other than Jesus who had an excuse not to be emotionally affected by the state of the lost because of a superior understanding of election, it would be Paul, right? But look at the first two verses in Romans 9. It's unbelievable. He says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's unbelievable. You can't imagine. I, I, I can't imagine 
ever saying something like that and meaning it before God. That's why Paul prefaces it the way he does. He, he knows that no one's going to believe it. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. He, he knows he has to say that because what he says is so unbelievable. If it were possible, he says, he would have cut himself off from Christ and he would take separation from God in order that his brothers, his kinsmen, would trust Christ, would be saved. It is impossible to imagine a statement that could demonstrate more compassion for the lost than what the author of Romans 9 says there. In fact, it seems maybe like we have this whole thing backwards because Paul starts off from this place of unceasing anguish in his heart. He is affected by it. He is so brokenhearted over his lost kinsmen that he is able to honestly make a statement like this. It's, it's, like, it's almost like the doctrine of election is what keeps him from losing it. He, he needs the truth that he talks about later, that, that God can and will save those whom he has called according to his great purpose and glory. He needs that truth in order to not be consumed in his anguish. So what we need to see then is that if we don't look upon the crowds moved with compassion because we see them as sheep with no shepherd like Jesus did, it's actually because we're deficient in our theology, not, not the other way around. We need a better understanding of theology and the gospel so that we can see the crowds the way that Jesus sees the crowds. And Paul was clearly able to do this based on that statement, and, and he, he had his anguish in his heart for them led him to continue minister to people who tried to kill him. In, in Lystra, the Jews stoned him to the point where they thought he was dead and drug his body outside of the city, and then he got up and went back in. The primary way he saw them wasn't as those who hated them. Now, it's the same as what he says actually in verse 10, in chapter 10, verse 1 of Romans. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That, that's what he sees in them. That's what he sees they need. He sees through their hatred of him and sees and longs for them to be saved. If your theology then keeps you from seeing the lost, if my theology, if our theology keeps us from seeing the lost like this, then it is actually a weak and unbiblical theology and we need to mature. So, back to Matthew 9. This is where our third point begins. The compassion of Christ, the reason for his compassion, and point three, the responsibility then of the disciples. In verse 37 says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors, laborers are few. So, after seeing the crowds and being moved with compassion for them, then, then he says that. He says, he says that statement. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He says it to his disciples. So first, then, he, he draws the disciples' attention to the situation with, with the harvest metaphor. He wants them to see the way he sees. He wants them to see it the way he sees it. 
It's, more, it's even more evident if you, if you look at that section from John 4 that, that we just read through, because in that verse, in John 4, 35, he tells his disciples, look, I tell you, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see, see that the fields are white for harvest. He wants them to see that someone needs to get out there and start working the fields. He wants them to see it. He is alerting them to the need. He wants them to see the crowds the way that he sees the crowd. So the first thing we need to do then is notice what Jesus is noticing. We need to see the crowds the way he sees them, with compassion as sheep without a shepherd, and therefore a field that's, that's ripe for harvest. And having, having a field that's ripe for harvest is a, is a good thing in the agricultural community. It's pointing to the fact that the waiting is over and the crop is ready. What is not good is the realization that there's no one there to reap the harvest. There's not enough workers. It's ready, but there is only a certain amount of time to get out there and reap the harvest before it goes bad. It's ready. There's a time that, ne- that this needs to happen. We've just heard, so, so we've just spent this time hearing about this, this whirlwind of exhausting ministry that Jesus has been going about here, how he's preaching and teaching everywhere, how he goes through these villages and towns, and, and he's seen there's these three million people all around, and he looks out into the crowds, and he sees the need for more laborers, and it is a need that still exists to this day. So that's what he tells his disciples. And it is no coincidence that this passage precedes Matthew's account of of the calling of the twelve in chapter 10 of Matthew, and then their subsequent instructions. We we can see these first couple of verses in this text, 35, 36, 37. We can see these first few verses in this text we're looking at today really setting up the foundation of, for what is actually the only real imperative in this text, which is this. Because of the fact that the harvest is plentiful, we must pray earnestly for the Lord to send out laborers. So there are people out there. They are lost. They are lost, and and we're not to look out and see Democrats and Republicans or Muslims and Buddhists and Catholics and liberals or conservatives or clueless people or enemies or people we're not supposed to see them in categories of people who love America, people who hate America. We don't look at those things. We look right through all of those things. All that outward stuff can be a smokescreen, that can be a distraction for other people, aren't to be a distraction for us. People who are no different, we're supposed to look through that and see hearts that are in rebellion against God. People who are no different than you or I would be if God had decided not to set His saving purposes upon us. Not because of anything that we had done, but because of His mercy. We see right through all the outward stuff to the person who is being led around by all of these foolish things that whether they know it or not are harassing them and destroying them. 
lost people who don't see it, who don't understand it, who have no clue of their helpless situation, who don't see how much they need a shepherd. We're to look out at the crowds with the compassion of Jesus and then understand understand the unbelievable truth that Jesus has declared. There's a plentiful harvest out there that needs to be gathered in. They need to hear the gospel. And this is where the doctrine of election comes in to motivate us. As we are reminded here that this harvest belongs to God. It's God's harvest. It's what it says at the end of verse 38. His harvest. His harvest. That means we know for certain, we can know for certain, that there are people out there who will respond to the gospel. Many people, because it says that the harvest is plentiful. Jesus is not saying that we need to send out laborers into that field to see if there's anything of value out there. And he's saying it's there. It's a certain thing that it's there. There are people out there in the crowds who belong to the harvest of God, and we need more laborers to get out there and bring them in. So, so I want you to understand then the two massive biblical truths that are being implicated here. It is true that God has his harvest, and they are his, and they will certainly be saved. And the reason, ultimate reason, is because he has decreed it in eternity past, and he never fails. But it is also true that they will never come to Christ, they will never be saved if someone doesn't share the gospel with them. Those are both true biblical statements. Both things are absolutely true. We are to look out at the crowds around us, not merely thinking, wow, look at all of those lost people. I'm so glad that God has determined to save some of them. Now we look into the crowds and think, look at all of these people, harassed, hopeless. Unless someone shares the gospel with them, there is no hope for any other faith in eternal separation from God. And when we see this, then the command of Jesus here will almost arise from our lips naturally. When we see this, we will obey this command and pray to God to send out laborers to reach them all. The Greek word for pray here isn't isn't the more common word for pray. It's not the the more, more common word for pray. It's actually a form of the word deomai, which is a word that means to beg or to plead. That's why it is translated in, in most translations as beseech or earnestly pray. This makes sense that Jesus would use this stronger word here, right, in light of everything we've talked about. Because when we see things the way Jesus does, That is how we're going to pray. They are everywhere. Lord, please send more laborers or they will perish. So we beg him and plead with him to send people to reach them with the gospel because the need is great. Notice also the type of people we're supposed to pray for. We're supposed to pray for laborers or workers. Supposed to pray for people who, who will do something. 
Jesus does not want us to pray that the crowds will look around and notice the good lives being lived by the disciples so that they'll begin asking questions to the disciples about why their lives are so godly and so that they don't have to be the ones to initiate the gospel conversation. He doesn't ask that. No, he, he, he doesn't ask that the harvest come to them. He doesn't ask for the harvest to come to us. Don't get me wrong, we're, we're definitely, definitely to live such godly lives among unbelievers that they will notice it. We are supposed to, but that is not all we are supposed to do. These laborers are to be doing the hard work of bringing the gospel to people. We're also to work at bringing the gospel to people. Charles Spurgeon responded to this type of thinking that as only he can, he said this, to never deal with men's consciences, never to upbraid them from their sins, never to tell them of their danger, never to invite them to a Savior with tears and entreaties. What a powerless work is this. God have mercy upon them. We want laborers, not loiterers. We need men on fire. And I beseech you, ask God to send them the harvest never can be reaped by men who will not labor. They must off with their coats and go at it in their shirt sleeves. I mean, they must remove their dignities and get to Christ's work as if they meant it. Like real harvest men, they must sweat at it. This is what we're praying that God will send out. These type of people. Men and women who know the work is difficult and uncomfortable and, re and will require much pain and toil. We need these people to be the ones evangelizing because everywhere I look, everywhere you look, don't you see this? It seems the majority of the people who are out there sharing their faith are not these type of people. They're offering some sad, pathetic version of the gospel that tells people that Jesus is the cure for your depression, or Jesus is the cure for your alcoholism, or Jesus is the cure for your financial woes, or Jesus is the cure for whatever thing in your life that, that it is that you don't like. Jesus is the cure for that. And they never tell them the truth of their lostness, the truth of their sin. The, the fact that it is many of the things that they love in their life, some of the things that give them the most comfort and false security and identity, it is those very things and the fact that they're clinging to them that makes them enemies of God, that they must turn from them, repent of them, and trust in this Jesus who took on himself the wrath of God that was due to them because of those things that they love to live for so much. We need to beg God to send out people who will say those types of hard things. Not, not sending out all these people who are out there being commended by a God-hating culture as they spread a false God gospel that can never save anyone, all the while believing that they're do what they're doing is actually pleasing to God. This is why we're supposed to pray that God will send these types of people out, laborers, because it's not an easy thing to do. In fact, the Greek word that is, that's translated for sin here is the word ekbalo. 
It, it doesn't just mean sinned in the normal sense, like I'm, I'm sending my kid to the store to run an errand. It doesn't just mean, ekbalo means to expel something by force. It means to drive something out. It's the word that is used when Jesus casts out demons. So, so the sense here is, is to force people to go somewhere where they might not actually be wanting to go. That, that's what we're asking God to do, to, to drive them out. This is where, again, the doctrine of divine sovereignty encourages us. This is not the thing that comes naturally to us, seeing the crowds the way Jesus does. It just isn't the way we naturally think. Going to them is not a natural desire for us. But God can and will do just this. He will give us the mind of Christ so we can see people this way. He will give us the strength to do this task, and he will drive us out into the harvest to do it. So we must pray for this. We must beg God to do this, to send out these laborers. And I think the reason that we're commanded to pray for this to happen, why we're commanded to pray for this to happen, and not for us to just go out and do it, because it, it's an acknowledgement that this can only be done through the work of God. And the other thing that happens when, when we're praying earnestly for God to send out laborers it is kind of similar to what Travis said last week about praying for our enemies. Right? Remember, when, when we pray for our enemies, it becomes more and more difficult not to love them. In the same way, when we are fully obeying this command, we are praying to God. We're begging God, send out people. Send out laborers, workers. Take them out of their comfort zones. Drive them out into the field. People who will work hard for the gospel. People who don't just sit around but will work hard, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how painful it gets. People who have the heart of Christ for a lost world and long to see the harassed and the helpless brought into the fold of the good shepherd. When you are earnestly praying for that, when that's your prayer, it's impossible to tack on to the end of that, but please don't make me one of them. <laughs> Can't do it. Now you, you'll find what I found this week as, as I was studying this passage. You won't be able to help pleading with God to make you one of them. That's what I found. So let, me, let me close with this. A couple of months ago, a couple of months ago, Travis and I watched a sermon from, from a pastor at a, a pretty, pretty large congregation in our area right here. And, and, in the, and in this sermon which was a sermon about evangelism, he made this horrible statement. We all hate doing evangelism. He said it as a truth that we should just deal with. In that statement, he indicated immediately, immediately that his heart for the loss is not even close to what we see in Jesus here. And he, he then proceeded 
to tell his entire congregation that the way that he was able to make evangelism easier for him was by finding out just what it was in the person's life that he was talking to that they were having a hard time with, and then telling them how Jesus could help them with it. That's what a pastor of a large church told his entire congregation that evangelism was. All of his congregation left that day deceived into thinking that if they go out and do this, they will be doing the work of Christ. That's the type of evangelism going on in our community, going on in our country. Unfortunately, the the type of false gospel that is being spread across our entire country is based on this type of evangelism. The entire world is hearing this. By those who would claim to be doing the work of Christ, by those who would think that they're being obedient to this passage. Does that bother us? It should. And what should we do about it then? Let's beseech the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers who see the crowds with eternity in their hearts and are ready and excited to serve the Lord in the hard work of the ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray fervently for that to happen, that you'd use us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that you have not withheld anything from us that we need to know to serve you obediently. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be faithful to this commandment. That you would give us eyes to see the way Jesus saw the crowds. We would see the lost. We Help us not to get distracted by all of the things that tempt us to complain about people see through those things to their lost state that they're sheep without a shepherd God I pray for laborers to work the harvest that you would send out that you would uproot people from comfort and ease and send them out to do hard work the hard work of sharing the gospel. Those who won't care about what people say about them or think about them, what this culture thinks about them, aren't distracted by worldly things, belong to see people without a shepherd come to our shepherd. And fill this church with those people. Make us those people. In Jesus' name, amen.